seated. All right, let's go Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk chapter 1. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we will put our text uh, for the morning up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, we also uh, have, uh, like I said, the, the Version Bible app that's available in there. Uh, if you're watching us online, we'll put our text for the morning up on your screen when we get around to that point in a moment. Um, if you don't have a Bible of your very own, you don't own one, a copy of God's Word, I would love to fix that. I would love to give you a copy. We believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things. Chief among those important things, though, is that He uses it to reveal himself to his people. Uh, we want you to know God. It's what we're about here. It's what drives us. It's what, it's what fuels uh, a, a gigantic piece of what we do around here. And so if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, uh, I would love to do something about that. And we believe that God is going to use that in a big old way. Um, that's why we're always pushing people around here towards Bible reading plans and stuff like that. And so uh, if you don't have one, let me know, uh, either online or after class, and we will uh, do something about that. So we are a few weeks now into a new series that we're working through through the course of the summer. Uh, it's a slow walk through the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets. Uh, we call him a minor prophet. Uh, there are major prophets and there are minor prophets. Uh, they're not called minor because they're less important or they weren't so special or just a little slow or anything like that. We call them minor prophets because they wrote less, all right? And so Habakkuk is only three chapters long. Uh, if you wanted to sit down and read it, it'd only take a handful of minutes. Uh, our approach, though, our uh, trajectory of attack is going to be a little longer. Uh, we're stretching it out over the course of a whole summer. Uh, but, but Habakkuk, we think, we think, uh, wrote during a very unique time in the history of the nation of Judah. Habakkuk is special. God's, God's people are walking in incredibly deep sin. They're openly sacrificing to other gods. And, and if you know your Old Testament well, then you probably immediately kind of get the, the picture that, well, that's not really the unique part. All right? Uh, like, that's actually kind of the normal way of life in Judah during this time period. Right? It's pretty much the setting of all of the prophets. God's people were walking in rampant sin. So why does that make Habakkuk unique then? Well, what, what makes Habakkuk unique is that we think that his story is playing out in a very short window of time between uh, what is the last great revival in the nation of Judah and the time where God raises up an, uh, another empire, the nation of Babylon, the Chaldeans. He raises them up to bring judgment and completely wipe out the kingdom. That small window of time between great revival and decimation. That's Habakkuk's setting. We think that Habakkuk got to see this incredible nationwide revival sweep through the land, sweep through every domain of society, and lead God's people back to where they always should have been, always ought to have been living as. And then he only gets to live it for just a little while because he watches it all fall apart into a million pieces. What a time to be alive, right? In fact, in fact, the Bible tells us, it seems to indicate that Judah returns to being more sinful than they were when they started. They're, they're in rampant sin, and things get really good, but it doesn't last for very long, and then it's worse than before. Imagine that scenario in your head for a moment. You feel like your prayers have been answered. You've been begging God for your whole life to to bring this thing about, and he does, right? 
God brings healing to the land, but just a short time later, you watch it all shatter. You watch it all fall apart and become not just nothing, but worse than before. And if you're in Habakkuk's shoes, how do you respond to that, right? What's your next step? What's, what's, what are you thinking? What, what, what's going to come out of your mouth first if you're watching this play out in front of you? Well, in the first four verses of chapter 1, we get to see what Habakkuk does. He cries out to God in his pain. He laments. And we said a couple weeks ago that that's exactly what he should have done. That's the appropriate response. That, that for God's people, the correct response to seeing darkness, to seeing turmoil, to seeing pain and heartache around you, the correct response for God's people is to cry out to the one with a capital O who can actually do something about it. Rather than try to cowboy up and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, whatever you want to call it, rather than trying to be our own functional saviors, we cry out to our actual savior. That's the correct and appropriate response to seeing darkness, to seeing the brokenness of sin. And so Habakkuk cries out to God. He did that. He goes, what are you doing? What, what are you doing? Why would you let your people act like this? What's going on here? Why, why do you let the people who bear your name continue to get away with this nonsense? Live so wickedly. Are you ever, like seriously, are you ever going to step in and do something about this? And then in week two, we see that Habakkuk gets an answer. I, I pray lots of prayers like Habakkuk. I, I don't think I've ever gotten an answer like Habakkuk got. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But Habakkuk, he gets an answer and God tells him, oh, I'm doing something. I, I'm doing something. In fact, I, I, I'm not idle. I, I'm not paralyzed. I see all this, and I'm already doing something about it. I'm already working to fix this. Get ready, Habakkuk, because I'm about to blow your mind here. You're not going to be able to wrap your head around the great and mighty things that I'm about to do. Just you watch. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, those bitter and hasty Babylonians. I'm raising them up, and I'm going to use them them, use them to bring judgment upon the nation of Judah for my name's sake. Get ready. Yeah. Woo. Aren't I great? God tells Habakkuk that he is going to wipe out his covenant people with a nation that no one hearing this story thinks or would describe as a more righteous group. In fact, everybody who knows the players in the game immediately understands the Chaldeans to be an incredibly wicked people. An incredibly wicked people. Now, we don't really have a direct comparison in our day and age. Uh, we're not Old Testament Israel. And this needs to be said over and over and over again throughout the course of this series because I think that's our, 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 our just kind of knee-jerk posture to assume that we're Israel in the story. We're not Israel. We don't have the same covenants. We don't have the same deals with God, all right? And, and it's also true that there's not really any nation on earth that's a direct comparison to Babylon right now, all right? No country is actively attacking and enslaving all the little nations around them. Right? So any kind of comparison in modern times would really be an unfair comparison. And so I, I'll, I'll, 
I'll admit that this is a forced analogy, but I think it's probably an analogy that'll help us understand what's going on here. This would seriously be like if we as Americans one day saw, just looked up and we saw the rampant sin of God's people all around us and we cried out to God, what are you doing? Why would you let this go on? Why would you allow this to continue? Aren't you going to do something about it? And it would be like God saying, I am. Get ready. I'm going to blow your mind. In fact, you won't even be able to wrap your head around the great and awesome things that I'm going to do. I've been raising up this entire time. I've been working on this. I've been raising up the North Korean regime for exactly this moment. Get ready. Oh, I'm going to use them. I'm going to use them to bring judgment upon you and everybody else who bears my name. I'm going to wipe you out. Selah. Anybody got some questions for God right now? Anybody got some things they'd like to bring up? And this is exactly, exactly where we left Habakkuk a couple weeks ago. reeling in a fog of confusion and desperately trying to figure out how any of this at all squares up with who he understands God to be. Wait, what? I don't know if I heard you correctly. What? So you ready to look at it? Just like you would, Habakkuk has a couple of things he'd like to ask God about. Look at verse 12. He says, are you not from everlasting? Oh, Lord, my God, my holy one. Let's call a time out there. All right, so lots of correct theology here, right? It sounds really good off, coming off the page. It just rolls off the tongue. Are you not from everlasting? All right, uh, so even though he's limited by, by the understanding of his time, Habakkuk knows his stuff, man. He, he understands some really deep things about the nature and character of God. And so he appeals to God with things that he knows to be true, knows to, be, uh, to evoke celebration, knows to be worthy of praise. And so these are the kinds of things that God ought to be praised for. He points out that God is everlasting. Everlasting. In other words, God has no beginning and he has no end. He's timeless. He's timeless. His everlastingness also means that he's immutable. He doesn't change. So, so why is that good news? Because God is the same yesterday, and God is the same today, and God will be the same forever. There's never a time, there's never, there never will be a time when God has acted flippantly. He's trustworthy and good and always does what upholds his glory. Habakkuk says he's everlasting, and he calls him my Lord. You'll notice there that it's all in capital letters. Uh, the ESV and several other English translations use that device to show that, uh, that the word that's used there is actually the, to identify the name of God, Yahweh, or the name that, that God gives to Moses at the burning bush, right? To, to show that he's both personable and knowable. In other words, he can be known because he makes himself knowable. He has opened himself 
up to us. Habakkuk understands here that, that it is solely because God makes himself approachable that he has the ability and the opportunity to come to him with this second complaint. Outside of that, Habakkuk doesn't have access here other than the fact that God has given him access. He's approachable and knowable. They're not on the same level. This is not, this is not, they're not buddies here. Uh, he is the Lord. He's everlasting. And then Habakkuk calls him my holy one. He's both high and lifted up. He's exalted. He is separate. He is other than. He is unique and special, right? And we talked about this last week. Habakkuk states out loud that he and God are not equals. Right? There's a, God may be approachable because he's made himself approachable, but this is, this is not, this is not a, a conversation between two best friends here. Habakkuk understands that he walks into the throne room right now on a different level than the one who's seated upon the throne. There's a distinction here. And so Habakkuk is going to bring his complaint. He's going to bring up his gigantic yeah, but. But he's careful to do so with the acknowledgement that he's approaching a throne that he doesn't just get to hang out around. At least not based on his own merit. He has no inherent right to be in this place. I don't know, maybe, maybe our boy got to sing Psalm 30 a few times during the revival period. He would have been around. Habakkuk appeals to God's bigness. He appeals to God's holiness. He appeals to God's goodness. Look at what he does with that appeal. Look what he says next. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. So if you have a different translation of the Bible other than what we're using here this morning with the ESV, the English Standard Version, uh, your copy of Scripture might say, you shall not die rather than we shall not die. Those are different sentences. So what do we do with that? In fact, there are several modern translations that render that word as you rather than we. So what's with the discrepancy there? What, 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 what do we do with this difference? Well, oftentimes when it comes to uh, English translations of the Bible, uh, it, the differences really honestly don't come down to anything other more than, than just style and preference. So yes, there are other issues in play, but a lot of times that's really the majority of the differences, style and preference. Translation uh, for ancient languages into English is not a science. It's just not. It's, it's an art with several uh, sliding scales of consideration to consider. Right? Um, and while some of those considerations are definitely more important than others, some of them are way important, others of them really just are, are about, well, how, how artistic do we want the language to sound? Like those kind of differences. All right? So we're left with a lot of different English translations of the Bible that can honestly be read side by side, and everybody in the room understands what's going on. Like, like if they just appear close enough to go, oh, okay, well, they decided to use this fancy word instead of that fancy word. That's a lot of times what's going on with English translations of the Bible. But we shall not die, and you shall not die are very, very different sentences with very, very different implications. And so what do we need to know? <laughs> what do we need to pay attention to? I really think that we need to learn the lesson this morning that sometimes, sometimes those differences in translation actually do matter. 
and they matter in a big, big way. So why do some translations render the word you and some translations render the word we? Well, the best I can tell uh, in the the looking into this that I did uh, is that scribes a long time ago were in the middle of copying this text and and it was all done by hand and there was no mimeograph machine that you couldn't walk into the church office back to the copy room and hit the xerox button right they had to write it out by hand right and so scribes were copying this text and they got to this verse and they decided that they needed to fix it that, that's the story as i understand it they decided that the that the hebrew word that was staring back at them must be wrong it must have been corrupted somewhere because habakkuk couldn't possibly be ascribing to himself something that only belongs to god eternality habakkuk's going to die one day but but god he'll he'll never die right And just a breath ago, Habakkuk was celebrating this kind of very idea about God. He's everlasting, right? So so maybe the copy that they were staring at, well, maybe that got corrupted somewhere, and it was time to fix it and change it back. That was the thought process in their head, and so they changed it. But they were good little scribes, and they noted the change. We actually have some manuscripts that not only have the, the change in the Hebrew word, but they've, they've also got a little note by it that says why they changed it. Why the change happened. All of our oldest manuscripts of Habakkuk, though, they, they don't reflect that change. So part of translation work is answering the question, okay, do we go with this collection of manuscripts or do we go with this collection of manuscripts? And I'm really glad, um, really glad that God has given us scholars who have studied this and dedicated their lives and careers to answering those kinds of big deal questions with expertise. Like that's a massive question to answer. And while the scholarly question can be answered, I think it should be answered, there's a pastoral question here that needs to be answered too. Well, if the scholars fight over which one came first, but I got a theory based on the pastoral side of things. So we, we want our Bibles to be accurate, but I think there's maybe something going on here that needs to be paid attention to. The, the idea that God cannot die is a true statement. No follower of Jesus would ever disagree with that, right? Like, like if we were to, to fold that into one of our songs on a Sunday morning, we'd sing it with gusto. Like, it's a true statement that deserves to be celebrated, that deserves to be shouted from the mountaintops. God is everlasting. He will not die. That's an absolutely true statement. But if Habakkuk really said we, if he really, truly, honestly followed up his celebration of who God is with we shall not die. It changes the tone of everything he's about to say. It reveals and sets up, I think, just a little bit of an arrogant posture before the Lord. You 
Yes and amen, the prophet understands that he's speaking to a holy God. He understands that as God, God gets to do whatever God wants to do, but what God is apparently getting ready to do, it offends Habakkuk's sensibilities just a little bit. It pricks him. And we can change the players, change the circumstances. I think it's a situation that a lot of people, myself foremost, I think that's a situation that a lot of people in this world have found themselves in at one point or another. To be pricked by what God is getting ready to do. God declares something about himself or maybe for himself, and we have this little instinctual flare-up, this knee-jerk rebuttal that goes, well, that's not fair! Right? Or am I the only one that's ever done that? See, the reason why the translation of a single word in verse 12 is so important here is because I think it gives us a window into Habakkuk's heart that every single one of us can identify with. That every single one of us has experienced before. It gives us a momentary glimpse of of a sinful posture, I think, hanging on just below the spiritual surface. And it's a posture that at least I can admit to, I know far too well. How about you? Habakkuk might approach God with careful and vaulted language. He may may know his theology, but what he really thinks about this situation is beginning to bubble up to the surface. And it's going to poke its head through in just a moment. In fact, it's going to poke its head through right now. Look at verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Okay, so the question isn't implied anymore, right? It's explicit now. I don't know if you've forgotten this about yourself, but you're supposed to have pure eyes here. You're supposed to to not be able to sit back and watch uh, people uh, do wrong. You're not supposed to be idle about that. That's clearly wrong to me, so why aren't you doing something about that? How dare you? I mean, yeah, your people are a mess right now, but how could you ever, and I mean ever, allow them to be punished by people who deserve your wrath way more than we do? What are you doing? Church family, the backing may have started out with a vaulted speech. He might have started out with lofty rhetoric about God, but there's clearly a what were you thinking, what are you thinking tone coming out of him right now. Hey God, you must have forgotten yourself for a moment there. You must have forgotten yourself. I mean, I hate to have to be the one to, to bring this up. You're, you're everlasting. You're high and lifted up. You're holy and approachable. But, but I, I guess I'll just have to be the dutiful servant right now and remind you of who you're supposed to be. What are you doing? See, the question that instinctively welled up in every single one of us a couple of weeks ago when God told Habakkuk what God was about to do That question is now spoken outright. Would God really, truly, honestly dare to use a bitter and hasty nation, a wicked and vile nation to punish his own people? Would he seriously do that? I mean, mean, surely the Chaldeans deserve his wrath more than Judah does. Come on, right? talk to me of fairness. If God were fair at all, he'd deal with the bad guys of the story first. What's he doing? And I would imagine that every one of us 
whether you're in this room or you're, you're watching this online right now, I would, I would imagine that every one of us has wrestled with either that question or we've walked with somebody who's wrestled with that question. And the question has many different forms, I think, but I think that most of the time it comes in the form of would God really allow innocent people to be swept up with the guilty? Would he really do that? I mean, sure, we, we, we've got our own problems, absolutely, but have you seen our neighbors? Jerks and murderers. Bitter and hasty. And so we carry our own little version of a zero-sum game into our accounting of who we think God is and what we think God ought to do. And so we push him, I think, into an imaginary corner and we require him to take option A or option B when it comes to dealing with what we perceive to be the problem of sin and the problem of pain in this world. You gotta choose God, A or B. And so from our vantage point, God must either, uh, must either prevent all evil and prevent all pain, or else he must be powerless per- to prevent any of it. He must get rid of it all, or, or how dare he, <laughs> or, or, or maybe he can't do any of it. He, he, better, he better wipe it out, or maybe he's not God after all. Maybe he doesn't care. But at the end of the day, it's the wrong zero-sum game. Because somewhere along the way, we somehow developed an entire category of people that doesn't exist in the Bible. The innocent. The innocent. And what's even better is that we had the gall. We could call it the, the entrepreneurial spirit if you want, but we had the gall to just go ahead and place ourselves in that category. The innocent. Yeah, we, we got our problems, but I mean... Have you seen our neighbors? We're the good guys in the story. But the Old Testament's answer to the question of why does God allow bad things to happen to good people, it's found in Psalm 14. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Jesus would come around a millennia later and give his own answer to the rich young ruler. Why do you call me good? There's no one good but God alone. Because we have the benefit of hindsight, we get to look back on those things. But a backing man, he's just not quite there yet. He's still in gripe mode. And so we'll have to shelve that idea for a second and come back to it in a moment. He wants to keep digging his hole. Verse 14. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them up with a hook. And so uh, we think that the he there is either uh, the king of Babylon or a personification of Babylon itself, okay? And so he brings all of them up with a hook and drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad, verse 16. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in love. Luxury and his food is rich. Habakkuk says that God's people are like a school of fish, and I don't think that's a compliment. They're feckless and without a ruler. And so he, he's either talking about the, the puppet king who sits on the throne right now of Judah, or, and this is more heinous, he's leveling this charge against God himself. Your people are, 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 are like a school of fish. They, they don't have a leader right now. 
In the ancient Near East, kings were seen as the protectors of their people. And then in comes the Chaldeans. And out come their fish hooks and their drag nets. And, and God's people are going to be hopeless and helpless against them. They don't stand a chance. It's about to go very, very bad for Judah. If only somebody, anybody would stand strong and prevent it. A real leader would protect his people in this moment. Where are you, God? Where are you? And what seems to be worse is that the Babylonians, they, man, they pride themselves on their military power. They puff up their chest. They're, they're haughty all day long. They, they place their faith in their weapons of war and they lean on them and make sacrifices to them like, like other nations place, place their hope in and sacrifice to their gods. They treat them with honor. The Chaldeans, they're marked by, by cruelty and by arrogance. And instead of those things being their downfall, no, it, it says they're walking around in luxury. They're living the good life right now. That, that bitter and hasty nation, that, 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 that if you were to put them out on the world stage and say, yeah, they deserve to be, they deserve their downfall. They deserve to, to crumble from within and, and be pressed on from outside. They deserve to have their comeuppance. No, instead, they are living large. God is not only raising them up, he seems to be blessing them immensely. They have comfort and wealth, and every bit of it has come from the broken backs of the nations that they're attacking and enslaving all around them. What a time to be alive. And if that pricks your sensibilities, don't worry, because it pricks Habakkuk's too. And so in verse 17, he says this, Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations? forever. Surely you're not just going to sit there, God, and allow that wicked and vile nation to continue making sacrifices to false gods through our blood. Surely not. Surely you're going you're to stop them and put them in their place, right? Right? Surely, surely you won't punish us with a nation who is Obviously, there's no doubt about it. Obviously, far more deserving of your righteous judgment than we are. I mean, do you see them? Do you see who they are? And do you see what they're doing? Where are you? Habakkuk decides that some signals have been crossed somewhere. And so in his reasoning, he is now the one responsible for making God aware of the confusion. So what does he do? Well, chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower, and I'll look out and see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk takes his stand on the watch post. Like a soldier waiting for the enemy to return his volley, right? He's looking out in the distance. He's keeping his eyes peeled. He is ready for them to respond back to the fight that he's trying to pick. That's what's going on here. I've given my complaint, he says. Complaint, though, is an interesting word. Because a lot of people think a better translation of that word would be rebuke. 
a reprimand, a reproof. I mean, take half a moment, half a second, and just make sense of the audacity of Habakkuk in this moment. Think about his posture before a holy God. I've given my rebuke, God. Like a schoolmaster, I've instructed you on how you ought to act. And so now I'm going to sit back here. I'm going to wait right here until you have something to say back to me. That's his tone right now. And even if you haven't read through the rest of Habakkuk yet, how do you think that's going to go? You think that's going to go well? I mean, sure, Habakkuk started out strong at the beginning of chapter 1. He was in lament over his sin and the sin of his people. He went to God for rescue. He started out strong in verse 12, laying out all that praise at God's feet. Oh, you're everlasting, you're holy, you're approachable. But make no mistake about it. Habakkuk still ferociously believes himself to be the good guy in this story. He believes that he is the innocent one rather than him being the perpetrator. See, in Habakkuk's mind, he's just a bystander. One desperately trying to get God's attention for the wrong things that God is allowing to take place. God is the one who's obviously messed up here. How how dare he act in such a way? And Habakkuk, he won't let this stand. No, sir. No, sir. And so he lays his charge against God and waits for an answer. I know you didn't say what I think you just said, so why don't you try again? Maybe Habakkuk hadn't read Psalm 30 after all. Because unlike David from last week, Habakkuk, man, he still seems to think that he deserves something from God other than wrath. That, he, that he's rightfully owed something. He, he, he might not think that he and God are on the same level. He wouldn't go that far. But he does seem to think that he's on a different level than those bitter and hasty Chaldeans. He does think that they're on different levels. He does seem to think that, that God's required righteousness is a sliding scale and he's on the winning team. That he can point to his neighbor and puff up his chest as if he's the good guy and everybody else is in the other category. He does seem to think that he has a privileged position and is free to be making demands to the actual king. But whether you're bitter and hasty or you're called out for a purpose, there's no one who does good. No, not one. Not even one. Both the Babylonians and Habakkuk, both of them are sinners in need of a Savior. Both groups, whether they see it or not, doesn't matter if they see it or not, both groups desperately need the mercy of a holy God. And Habakkuk, he he doesn't seem to understand that in its fullness yet. Somewhere in there, buried deep down, he still seems to think that his righteousness gains him something before the throne. But what about you? Do you have the same posture? 
Do you see your need for a Savior? I don't care if you're religious or not, churchgoer or not. You can be as wicked as the Chaldeans, or you can be more righteous than all of your neighbors like Habakkuk was. Do you see your desperate need for mercy from a holy God, or do you still think that you can somehow position yourself or or posture yourself in such a way that your own man-made attempts at righteousness will gain you something? Yeah, I can squeeze myself into this slot here and get in the door. Whether you're brutal and making sacrifices to false God or you're using vaulted language laced with all the correct theology, at the end of the day, man-made righteousness is woefully insufficient. And it always will be. It always will be. And this is the reason why Jesus came to die. To do for man what man cannot do for himself. We are all, by default, separated from a holy God because of our sin. We rightly deserve his wrath. But God is rich in mercy and he loves us with a great love and he made a way where there was no way. The eternal son of God, Jesus, put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross as an innocent substitute to pay the debt of our sin and he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And if you're here with us this morning and or you're watching us online right now and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, he now, in this moment, calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith. To turn away from your sin and turn to him as Savior and Lord. He calls on you to humble yourself before the true king and his finished work on your behalf. That's what he calls you to. And you can do that this morning. You can, you can turn to Jesus. In a moment, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a time for you to respond. He, he calls on you to, uh, uh, to call on him to save you. And the Bible says that he will in that moment. Call on him as Savior and Lord. Listen, you, you don't need some mediator. You don't need some priest or preacher to, to walk you through that. Jesus wants to give you himself in his fullness. But man, I'd love to help you. Whether you're in this room or you're watching us online right now, and I'd love to help you walk through what that response of faith looks like. Give me a call. Let's talk. But what about, what about those of us who are already followers of Jesus, though? Like, what, what, do, we, what do we do with this? How, how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, I think the answer to that question is actually, it'll actually come to us by answering another question. What category do we put Habakkuk in? What category do we put him in? In in other words, is is Habakkuk actually one of God's people? Say it in a more flippant way. Will we get to see Habakkuk in heaven? I think the answer is yes. I think the answer is yes. For all of his faults, Habakkuk does have a relationship with God here. That doesn't come to anybody. Habakkuk does have a relationship with God here, but, but Habakkuk's posture before God, Habakkuk's posture before God, the moment he doesn't like what God is doing, man, I think it's testimony to how much further Habakkuk still needs to travel spiritually. I think there's some things that God is still refining in Habakkuk's heart, which is good news to me because I'm the same kind of mess that Habakkuk is, right? 
I need that too. We, we said a, a few weeks ago that Habakkuk's lament at the very beginning of this letter was good and healthy, that it was actually necessary for God's people to respond that way when they're staring down the barrel of true pain and true heartache. But circumstances, man, they seem to have changed, and we're not talking about lament anymore. Habakkuk seems to be in a different place now. We're now we seem to be dealing with an anger-fueled pride. Habakkuk's still got some junk he's working through. Habakkuk got an answer to his lament, but when that answer wasn't, uh, when that answer doesn't look like and sound like what Habakkuk was hoping for, what was buried deep down in his heart, man, it came exploding to the surface. And I think that ought to teach us a very clear lesson this morning that the gospel, guys, it's never merely an introductory step into the life of a Christian. It's way more than that. It is the filter by which everything else makes sense. That's why we repeat it every week as if you need to hear it, because I need to hear it. It is a driving narrative that shapes how we see and make sense of the rest of the world, of every other thing. And Habakkuk, man, he seems to have forgotten that, at least for a moment. At least for a moment. His heart, man, it's, it's, it's still fighting to get back onto that throne. He's fighting it. Now, if you haven't read the rest of the letter yet, if you haven't finished reading Habakkuk on your own, I think Habakkuk eventually comes around. He's going to get there. God is going to show him an immense amount of mercy and grace in this moment. He's going to slowly continue to bring Habakkuk along. Habakkuk is going to get there, he'll eventually find himself in a place where he rests deeply in God's bigness and control. But we're not to that part of the letter yet. We're not quite there ourselves. And so the question for the Jesus follower this morning is, what about us? Do we find our rest in Jesus' lordship? Or we can say it a different way. What's our posture before God? when the answer finally comes back to that thing you've been begging him for, and it's the exact opposite of what you were hoping he would say? What's our posture in that moment? When God seems to be working backwards and upside down to how you would play things. Because I'll, I'll be real honest with you, whether you know it or not, that moment is a gigantic proving ground spiritually. It shows where, how far along you've come maturity-wise. Namely, do we lean in in that moment or do we lean out? Do we press in in that moment or, or do we run away? That's the question. Follower of Jesus, our response to God's word is the same as it is every other week for a reason. It, we repent of sin and we press into him. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. That's a time specifically given for, for you to, to do that, to take an opportunity to, to do that. Instead of rushing out of here and getting on with whatever else, we want to give you an intentional moment where you had to pause and deal with that stuff. So that's a time for you. Listen, maybe you need to respond to, to God's word in some other kind of way. Maybe it's by, by being obedient to, to Jesus in baptism, or maybe it's by joining this church family, or maybe it's uh, by, by saying yes to the call of missions or service that he's laying in front of you right now. Maybe that's your response to God's word this morning. Whoever you are, however, you're, however God is calling you to respond today, let's do that together right now. Father, thank you so much for the scriptures. Thank you for... Habakkuk. 
Thank you for a letter that seems to be revealing more of my heart than I'd like to admit. As you continue to walk graciously and patiently with him, would you do so for us as well? And I find myself over and over and over again assuming a posture where I forget that I am the sinner in the story rather than the innocent victim. I do it all the time. Be as gracious to me as you, have, as you were to Habakkuk. I beg you. Continue to pull me along. Guard me from, from haughty rebukes. Father, for those who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to know who you are? Would you draw people into your kingdom this morning by your grace? And whether brand new or here forever, would we all find our rest in you and what you have done for the sinner this morning? In Jesus' name.